Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm co-hosting a show with a fellow previous guest and previous co-host and alumnus of Fifth Wrist Radio, Ruben Scoots. G'day, Ruben. How are you? G'day, Roman. Really well, thank you. Very glad to be here hosting a show. That's uh, very exciting. Beautiful. Well, that's how we get people in. You know, we, we introduce you as a guest and we'll slowly kind of, you know, reel you in till you're doing all the work. Uh, but no, that's good. Great to have you along, Matt. Uh, we've got an absolute cracker of a show coming up. Um, we've got a couple of guests. I've been a huge fan of their work. I know you have been as well. It's an honor Certainly. and a pleasure and whatever other superlatives we can use. Uh, please welcome Craig and Rebecca Struthers to the show. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Nice yeah, thank you for having us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you guys on the show. Um, we've been we've been enormous fans of what you do because in my mind, you kind of exemplify the traditional in the best case things, this kind of handmade, beautifully crafted traditional horology, which I think it's still wonderful to see somebody doing that kind of work. Uh, yeah, so it's fantastic to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. No yeah. problem, thank you. I was just going to say, we definitely do things the long way around. <laughs> yeah. If that's traditional. <laughs> I think it's uh, more um, probably finances than uh, tradition, if that makes sense. <laughs> the, the cost of an old play versus CNC. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just fine, though. We, lo- we love it and yeah. we wouldn't change it. So it's cool. Well, maybe a good place to start potentially for the people who don't know Struthers Watchmakers, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you're based and kind of what your what your job roles stuff is. I know it's going to be a long conversation. Go as long as you like. <laughs> well, try not to bore you, but um, I think so. Basically, Struthers as a watchmaker started probably about 2012. Yeah, 2012 we went. Um, so we started in London, really, and just got a very small loan. Um, and, well, to be honest with you, it's a £15,000 loan, which obviously in, in the world of watchmaking today will probably just get you in the door and onto the map of a watchmaking company because it sure. literally was gone in a week. And <laughs> yeah. uh, we managed to find a workshop. Well, we moved from London back to Birmingham. We knew Birmingham was a lot cheaper than London, so we could get a workshop mm. um we had one lathe and um yeah it's just starting from scratch again after working for uh restorers in london it was me and rebecca just trying to do it on our own really and find clients and start the i mean it was restoration initially yeah um, so yeah mm. for three restoration i mean we uh, specialize in pre-1960s watches so there's no spare part supply for what we do i work on anything from sort of 1650 1700 up to kind of you take over about 1820 1830 through to 1960 so it meant that we got really good at making parts for other people's watches and it was through that we kind of just reached this point where we thought well 
we can make all these parts for someone else's watch. Why don't we have a go at making it for one of our own? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the the overview of it. We did um, we did a lot of case making in the middle of it too, and restoring heritage movements, which is something we still do. So uh, movements where the case has been scrapped for its gold. Um, there was a point they used to be just mm. thrown in the pit. So we started collecting all these beautiful vintage and antique movements, and kind of got to this point where we just thought, oh. These are such beautiful things and they're never going to be made again. So we thought we'd start making new cases for them. And that got us, that was kind of the first step into case making, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't, we didn't ever want to make watches, to be honest. Um, it was an accidental process. Mm-hmm. We've always been into like vintage watches and for us, mm. they're like, that's, that's my passion. That's what got me into it. Not science or, you know, the, timekeeping within you know nanoseconds a year to me it's yeah. the look and the feel and the provenance of an old piece and who owned it and I, I mean in most cases with vintage pieces it's always the style because they, they seem to get it right a long time ago and uh well for a maybe i'm being biased but um if you look at classic pieces they just have aged beautifully they're not too out there or you know they still have that one fundamental idea mm. of what I think in your head a, a wristwatch should look like, and um, not saying there's anything yeah, wrong with that. Absolutely, it's it's cool, but um, sure. I think for us, technology's gone mad with uh, sort of super techie <laughs> pieces, which is totally cool. But it's not what got me into it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's kind of there's need for both isn't there there is need for always pushing the boundaries always exploring whether it's new materials new levels of precision you know all of that but there's also this need to preserve the crafts that if we don't there's only you know i I always think to myself you know we're always one generation away from losing a particular craft because if somebody dies dies out you know if it dies out with the maker you know, that's gone and it's irreplaceable. And I know that sort of heritage craft is something that you guys are very much passionate about as well. And that was one of the reasons I was really excited having you on the show because I, yeah, I, I think that is so important to continue that unbroken chain of knowledge, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think I think for us, we're pushing boundaries in ourselves by looking at old mm. things and recreating them. And that's our little boundaries, mm. not in a techno- technology kind of, way it's not doing anything if, if mm. anything it's take it's holding things back but i kind of like that yeah, <laughs> sure. we've um, brought back a dead escapement as part of our in-house movement project we're making at the moment so we're using an english leave escapement which hasn't really been made commercially for probably over 100 years um but because mm. of that there's no kind of how to with how to put one together so it's been mm. going through a lot of very old textbooks and um trying to find old drawings and looking at originals and reverse engineering something, Mm. which is uh, kind of bringing that back. Mm. And it's also, I think, it's where traditional watchmaking has really suffered is because we do rely on so many heritage crafts. I mean, whether it's enameling dials or engraving, case making is really endangered as a skill too. It's quite a specialist and we don't have many case makers left now, which is why we ended up doing it in-house because... we, our first watch, we actually won a competition with a design for a watch. And we naively thought, oh, that's great. If we win the competition, we'll just outsource the case to someone else and they'll make it for us. And um, we mm-hmm. rapidly found out there was no one <laughs> out there who was going to be able to make this case. So we ended up with 10 weeks having to make it ourselves. 
which was an amazing learning curve, but it just really hit home that kind of the UK used to have this really rich watchmaking history, but it's been so long now since that industry was at full force that we've lost so many of the allied crafts that we need to kind of collaborate with people. So that's been a lot of the last, well, it's been 10 years next year, um, we've spent uh, trying to rebuild oh, these go. networks around us in the jewellery quarter of finding kind of small engineering companies who can help us make tools, specialist tools and equipment, and, yeah, and bringing case-making in-house, bringing oh, dial enamelling. Um, we've recently been doing a bit of work with Anne Ordain up in Glasgow, so they're doing an amazing job at reviving that. I think there's probably a point there were no darling oh, that's left in the UK. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. yeah, I've got yeah. an Anodane um, on the wrist. Um, I thought, you know, yeah. I needed to have a an English sort of watch and I figured, you know, while the referendum was 55-45 back in whenever it was, still part of the UK. So I thought I'd strap that's an good. Anodane yeah. to the wrist. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of what they do. Yeah, Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, Lewis was a previous guest on the show. So, no, big fan of, um, big yeah. fan of what they do. Um, yeah. I, I sort of wondered about the location, whether you, because in my mind, I was wondering whether you chose Birmingham as your location because of that strong connection to the jewellery making sort of side of things, or whether you were sort of from Birmingham originally and sort of came home. Um, it's both, really. So, um, I mean, the jewellery course does have a really strong heritage of making jewellery and allied trades to the watchmaking mm. industry. So, Denison. Um, Aaron Lufkin Denniskin, the American entrepreneur, mm. came over here in the 19th century to found a watch case manufactory literally down the road from where our workshop is now because of the skills oh, that wow. he knew were based here in the jewelry quarter. And Denniskin at one point were probably the most prolific case maker in the world. So they made for kind of mass production companies like Waltham, Elgin, Hamilton in the US. They made for Amiga, they made for Rolex. Um, they were huge. But, um, yeah, there's not, not so much mm. left now. But we, uh, yeah, so Craig and I actually met in the jewellery quarter. <laughs> we trained together um, at a school around the corner from us doing the British Horological Institute course. Um, that was back mm. in, we started 2004. 2004, yeah. yeah. So I, I came into this at 34. So that's very late wow. for a lot of people. But, um I mean, you can come into this at any age, I suppose, within reason. So it's kind of cool. But um, I don't. You were only eighteen, weren't you, when you started? Yeah, well, I started jewelry, jewelry and silversmithing for two years first when I was seventeen. So yeah, but that's how we. Yeah, mm. we ended up meeting there, and we just we were friends for a long time afterwards, and then kind of. I got divorced. <laughs> yeah. um. I had nothing to do with that. Wasn't implying anything. No, that no, was a no, blank, was that no was a neutral look. I was not. That was no judgment on this side of that <laughs> thing. Um, I actually find that really interesting because we've got. I mean, your path into watchmaking, both Craig yours and Rebecca yours, that you know you kind of discovered watchmaking. You know, let's I'll use in, you know inverted quotations late, and Ruben was also sort of discovered watchmaking you know, re recovering from an illness. It was sort of a serendipitous kind of entry. I always wonder how bad a job is the watchmaking industry doing itself recruiting talent? I mean, Rebecca, you did, you know, you were doing jewellery and silversmithing. And as far as I believe from previous, you just kind of, you know, the place where you were learning jewellery just happened to have a horology course. Right? It was just, and somebody said, hey, you should try this out. I mean, that's incredible to me that, 
you took to it. It was obviously a passion, but somehow the watchmaking industry or BHI or whoever's the educating body doesn't do a good job of finding, you know, or finding those people, those sort of students. It sort of seems like such a wasted opportunity to me. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it, and I think a lot of craft have it. Yeah, no, I think um, now I think you're absolutely right, and I think a lot of craft have this problem. And in defence to some of the craft people and institutions, I actually think schools and careers advice and guidance and counselling could do a lot more mm. as well. Um, like I don't know about you guys on this, like over there, but in the UK, when you're going for careers uh, guidance at school, it's all your standard doctor, lawyer, vet nurse mm. teacher sure. um it's very <laughs> yes. kind of restricted yes. there's, there's nothing else and i do think there's a lot of young people out mm. there who particularly the ones that aren't particularly academically inclined um who really struggle with this kind of this is how to be successful when really there are so many other skills out there including practical skills like watchmaking or many of the other crafts we've mentioned mm. that are desperately in need of people but it's it's so hard to find your way into them I think that's part of the problem. I think the fact that there aren't many um, courses either. I mean, in the UK now, there's only one specialist course for watchmakers left. Um, so it's hard to get onto a course in the first place. And if you don't have the resources to teach yourself at home, obviously setting up a workshop is really expensive to do and um, buying lathes and all your tools and equipment. Mm, and if you don't know where to start doing that, um, it's really hard going. Whereas a college has all those facilities for you there, so mm. it gives you the chance to kind of have that shared experience, have access to really good tools and equipment, pick up your skills, so hopefully kind of you can get a job when you leave and, and kind of build up your collection on the side before going self-employed. So it, it is really <laughs> challenging. I think it's just a challenging career to get into. Um, but we're hoping, we're actually mm. setting up a website at the moment. We got a grant last week. Um, set up an educational website for watchmakers which we're hoping will help address some of the kind of imbalance there is at the moment of um, just creating something really accessible so it'll be free to use um, free to access and um, it'll allow people at any stage in their career from literally they just think they'd like to learn watchmaking through to people who've graduated or maybe they've just gone self-employed and kind of got a project they're really stuck on but Right. Okay. You suddenly realise you're on your own now. You've got no one sat next to you to ask for advice if you're, you're stuck mm-hmm. in a, a problem with watchmaking. So it'll kind of help break down some of that and, and give people that introduction as to best places to start and um, just try and make it more accessible. I think is what we really need. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of. That's amazing. Well, it's Rebecca's idea. I, I have to. <laughs> take my hat off to oh. but I think part of it was is this um, is this the watchmakers cafe yes yeah. that's yeah. it yeah so they're going to like yeah yeah we thought it sounded pretty chilled and relaxed yeah like ace cafe cafe culture type vibe of just to yeah. relax <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be like intense like people talking about serial numbers or dealing online I want it to be just about <laughs> watchmaking <laughs> and issues if you know what I mean yeah um but yeah it's it's, I think also for us it was so we could try and uh, help people and use other people as well to help because I think not everyone can take on an apprentice. It's, yeah. it's quite um, mm. difficult and expensive, especially as a small business. So for us it is our way of kind of spreading the, the, the wealth of 
Spread the love. Spread the the love. (laughs) Yeah. And without actually having to take anyone on, we can use this platform as that sort of idea. And other people can contribute when we don't have the time as well. So other people can get involved. Yeah. I think there's quite a few watchmakers we've spoken to. And us too, we regularly have people contacting us, whether it's by email or through our website or social media, (laughs) saying they want to learn watchmaking or they want to advance their skills and do we know how, what courses, apprenticeships and stuff? And it's all so rare and hard to do. It's really hard to know where to point people. Um, and we know a lot of other watchmakers in our position where if it's just one or two of you, training a master watchmaker from scratch, I mean, traditionally an apprenticeship was seven years. There are no seven-year courses. Mm, wow. That's incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming. And, of course, if there's only one of you, that time you're teaching, you're not working yourself either. So there are a few sort of grants and incentives mm. to be to help pay an apprentice, but nothing covers your lost time. So that whole time, it's like seven years mm. apart of that, you're not making any money either. It is it is really hard. Of but course. at the same time, a lot of watchmakers do want to teach people and they do want to give back. It's just they can't afford an apprentice. So hopefully, hopefully this will create that kind of middle ground where they can kind of share their skills and help teach people but they're not recruiting anyone it's kind of in their own time as and when they can um there's no pressure that way yeah in a nutshell (laughs) hopefully anyway that's the plan well and we should say you know you guys were far too modest you just skated over the 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 fact that you received an award the president's award of the heritage craft sorry i don't have my computer with me there's a pool name from the His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, so, you know. So that, you know, let's just yeah. add that in there as a that was a clearly that was a proposal that was met with a lot of support from the right craft. So well done to you. I mean, it does sound like a tremendous initiative. Once again, from somebody. So I'm not in the industry. I'm just an enthusiast. But I completely agree with you. That it's so important to encourage you know people new into profession or at least help them find information or resources to to help them grow and develop. I think that's a wonderful thing. And I know Ruben as a completely independent self-taught watch and clockmaker would probably, you know, would have benefited from something like that here in Australia, I'd say. As soon as I saw the announcement, I thought this is exactly what I needed, you know, Um, and maybe it's exactly what I need as well. Uh, There's there's always people better than you and what you do, whether you like it or not. And, um, fantastic to be able to connect with those people and and to learn you know particularly being you know in australia and there's there's many countries in the world there's only five or six nations that traditionally have watchmaking you know that leaves another 240 something that don't have watchmaking taught and this is something that could really open this up you know uh, for people wanting to to get make a start thank you yeah it is it is hard on your own and um yeah, we completely. You never stop learning. Yeah, we're learning every day, and we're still learning things from other people. And even you might be doing something one way for your entire career so far, and then someone else will come along and say how they're doing it, and it half your time if you did it this way instead. So you're always discovering new <laughs> stuff. When you stop learning in this career. Yeah, for you to do what you've done on your own, Ruben, yeah. is, is pretty remarkable. It's. Uh, at least me and Rebecca had some... We have each other to complain things. We have each... Well, <laughs> yeah, there is that. And yeah. we had I still guys... complain to my partner. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But, yeah, I mean, even the BHI course was only three years. But mm. after that, we we worked for restorers and you learn there. And you work when you're in a workshop of 
you know, five or six people, it's so much different to being on your own. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, mm. I, I take it for granted now, but if, if I was doing this on my own and hadn't had the background, it would have been really tough, mm. without a doubt. Definitely. Yeah. It's tough anyway. <laughs> but I think we're all in it because it's, because it's tough and because it's interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm just in awe of what you guys do because my brain doesn't work on technical things at all. I like, I'm glad that there are smarter people than me who exist who can make these things. I'm just happy to be, I'm just lucky to enjoy the, the, the fruits of your work, essentially, sort of thing. So I'm very happy. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the watchmaking that you guys do do um, in, in Birmingham. So maybe tell us a little bit. So you've got this really interesting thing. So you're a small you know, you're, you have small production, but you do have quite an interesting range because you cover a, a ladies' watch, a men's watch, and a pocket watch, and then an in-house movement, which we'll talk about in a sec. I mean, that's quite a range from a true watchmaker team. Bravo to you. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. It's to be busy. Honest. We're busy. Yeah. We're always busy. <laughs> so how how's it going down there? Has sort of the whole Brexit thing, has that affected you guys at all? Has it affected oh. the trade? I sort of um, wondered about that, or too early to say, kind of thing. Or it's, I think it's finally starting to kick in because a lot of it was being put down to COVID to start off with, um, and I think it's kind of settling in now oh, that it's course, not right. COVID. So the biggest problems we've got are things like supermarkets and food. Um, we haven't got enough truck drivers now, um, so it turns out a lot of them were from mainland Europe. Oh no! Um, oh, so a lot of supermarkets are empty. <laughs> prices are going up. Customs are a nightmare. So I don't know if you've oh, heard now. And to try and keep shipments moving into the UK, the UK are not um, doing any kind of like checking and, and also like customs checks on yeah, yeah. EU things coming into the UK. Oh, However, they are still, the EU are doing it to customs things coming out of the UK into the EU. And that's been causing a lot of problems with things getting stopped at customs and a lot more checks. There are a lot more checks going on now. We've got oh, a watch wow. looking customs at the moment, which is really stressful. Um, but yeah, a lot for the same problem. Apparently, it's things that are rare, unusual, bespoke, and more likely to get stopped because they've not seen them before. So it's not just that every maker we've spoken to is really struggling with um, sending stuff abroad at wow. the moment. So that's fun. Um, we're supposed to be getting some engraving done in Germany, or, or engravers in Austria. <laughs> Um, and we're really struggling to get the parts for him um, and back again, again with all the customs wow. issues. Because, um, yeah, they're not going to know what on earth those are if they come through customs. So we really need to hand deliver them. Just, ra- yeah, random metal bits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. What are we up oh, to? No. Um, Strange new challenges for you, aren't they? Yeah, it's not really been an ideal for all of this to time for everything to happen. So it's all at the same time as well. So COVID, Brexit, um, yeah, mm. not not great, but we're managing. <laughs> the sort of thing that that makes you uh, start doing things, you know, yourself or at, in in your own country. You're yeah, forced to I'm... find local craftsmen or you know learn the skills yourself now. Yeah, I think it's things like. We really love working with other craftspeople. Um, that's something we've always really enjoyed mm. because you find, you learn more yourself. Um, and ultimately, things like mm-hmm. engraving are such specialist tasks. You'd spend your entire life getting as good as the people we like to work with. So we almost we, mm, we could indeed. try and take it in-house. And Craig's done some engraving training as well. 
but we don't want to. We love working with people, and we really like being a historian yeah. as well. I love the 18th century approach to watchmaking. So top watchmakers would travel around Europe. I think, was it Vacheron or Constantin? One of the two. Literally strapped his mm. uh, bench to his back and would travel around learning from different people. And, um, yeah, we, we just love working with it and, and traveling around. It doesn't have to be in the UK. We're not one of these brands who are like, mm-hmm. we have to be as British as possible. We want to work with amazing artisans all over the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that inspires us. Other people inspire us. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll come, be able to continue doing that on some level. I think we always want to do the watchmaking, so the actual mm. making the movements themselves, and we're, we're mm. happy with case making now as well. But with our in-house movement, and we'll talk about this from Craceback as well, we want to try and find a way to incorporate another artisan in every one that we do going forwards. So we've got our engraver, Dorian, and um, Ordain we're working with on the first ones. Um, But, yeah, keep finding people as we go. Yeah, it's it's inspiring, isn't it? You see these people doing these amazing things. um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's where it's best, isn't it? Where you where you have the best craftspeople working together. It's always the sum is always better than the individual parts. You always the the sum total is always going to be better. You know, if you have a cabinet maker making a beautiful presentation case and a leather craftsman making a strap and a engraver making the best engraving and enameler making it. I mean, when that that when that is done well, I mean, the final product is better than any of the individual things it's just all it's like a symphony isn't it it just works so much better so wow we're just saying about working with makers around the world yeah it's really uh, well rebecca's probably already said but it just makes it makes our job more interesting i suppose and i, I think for um when we always say it's just me and rebecca i suppose really it's a li- like you said it's a little community of people that come together to make one piece really so we I suppose essentially mm. it's us making it, but when you add up everyone else involved, strap maker, box maker, and if we use enamelin through another company or whatever, mm. there's a nice little community of people that are all passionate about the little thing they've done in, in one piece. And I suppose, yeah, it does make it more interesting as well for us. It's, yeah. So you meet, get to talk to other people, you don't get stuck cabin fever. We develop new stuff as well. So, um, because we've been enamelling um, dials here. Um, so our landlord, Stephen and Francis, make a lot of enamel cufflinks. But we're having issues because cufflinks are quite small mm, and dials are very large and you need to be perfectly flat. So it's kind of like trying to get the finish right. But we developed a totally new technique for making enamel dials, but we couldn't get the finish. And then we got chatting oh. to Anne Ordain and told them what we were doing. And we basically handed them all of our research and development to this point, um, no strings attached. And now they've been building on what we've started off now. And we've literally just mm. in the last two weeks just perfected it. So we wouldn't have been able to do that on our own and they wouldn't have it without us. But it's mm. through coming together with another maker that we've, um, it's kind of weird. They they were trying to achieve the same thing at exactly the same time, but in a different without way, without either of us knowing it. Yeah, and both using a slightly different technique. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's kind of strange, <laughs> but uh, good timing in a way. Yeah, it's 
Serendipity. Yeah, once again, serendipity, isn't it? It's all this, it's all in the timing, isn't it? <laughs> Literally. Serendipity and Instagram. <laughs> we do a lot of that. Yeah, we've met so many people <laughs> through Instagram. It's a really useful tool. It is. It's, sometimes you feel like you're working for Instagram. Yeah. And, if, you know, it can be pressured. I've not posted anything. Yeah. You start to think, I need to do something like they're looking at you, Instagram. But, um, yeah, apart from it's a great tool. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to ask this a bit later, but this is probably as good a time as any. Finding clients, you know, because your work's very much one-off pieces or working very much with, you know, personally one-on-one with it. How do potential clients find you? Is it word of mouth? Is it Instagram? And it's the same question for Ruben as well, would be as well, you know. What do you think works in the current sort of media climate, once again, in the inverted commas, for indie makers? I think... When you're, I think when you're, well, word of mouth and Instagram probably. I think when you're a small company, you can't, you don't have the budget for advertising and or time or time. Yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, you you need whole departments now for advertising, photography, uh, <laughs> shows like putting on shows and mm. events and. You when, need stock to put on stock, events. That's we don't never have any stock. Everything we do is made to order. So. So we kind of, of sit. Our clients are our showroom, really. We don't have many clients, but when they're wearing our watch, they basically are our showroom. So, um, fortunately, mm. we, we don't need lots of clients. I mean, it'd be nice, but we don't need many. And that sounds not, I don't mean that arrogantly. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. because we couldn't make them anyway, even if we did, it'd, yeah. it'd be impossible. So, I think we've possibly got the right sort of balance at the moment that. The amount of clients and what we can actually physically mm. do and if we can keep that that would be great mm. but um i don't think for us it's not about launches and events i know we've done events in the past but we soon realized that the longer we're out the workshop and the more we're sort of traveling or staying in london or or whatever it's um yeah, it takes a lot, lot of our making yeah. time away. The bigger you get, the more time you're away from the bench. I think we've we've seen that now. We didn't realise mm. that when we first mm, set out. Of course. But, um, now, yeah. I think you look at uh, what I mean. If you look, I suppose in the watch industry, it's so varied, and you could look at what everyone else is doing and think, well, maybe I need to be doing that or doing this. But mm. you've got to kind of yeah. look at what you're doing and and think about maybe. Yeah. What sort of client you might be looking at, and what you enjoy. Keep it simple, and what you enjoy. Otherwise, yeah. once you stop enjoying it, I'm sure all people setting up a business, literally in anything that you're doing, get the same thing. Of everyone's like, oh, so you're going to grow, you're going to hire people, like trying to increase your turnover and the rest of it. And we initially we were on that. Okay, yeah, we've, we've set up a business, we've got to grow, it's going to be our this thing. And we just realised as we started going down that pathway that it's just it's not it's not like that. If you like making, then you kind of need to stay small because as soon as you grow and get bigger that's it you're going to be running a company you're not going to be at your bench making and designing stuff anymore you'll have people to do that mm. for you and that's kind of we started down that path and then kind of made a bit of a u-turn and just realized that no we don't want to go big we just want to be just the two of us just making strange things together in our workshop meeting amazing creative people um, and just hope that enough people like what we do to keep us going yeah. yeah, I mean, this is probably the worst business yeah. plan ever. But, um, <laughs> it's kind of all right for us. We enjoy it. 
but but I think I, I would imagine that would be the attraction for somebody thinking about getting a bespoke piece made, you know, bespoke watch made. I think that's a real draw. If, if you know, if I knew that if I wanted a Struthers piece and I knew it was made by Struthers, not by a somebody in the team or, you know, that was made through your hands and Craig's hands. I mean, I think that's really where the heart of the piece is, right? No pun intended there. That's that's the attraction. The authenticity of a Struthers watch being made by Struthers hands, if you like, I think that's a, that, that's kind of the beautiful thing about it. Yeah, possibly. Thank, Thank you. Very yeah. kind of you to say so. I mean, I think... Uh... If your name's on the dial, it's it's nice to think that you've the rest of it has been made by whatever name's on the dial is that person's <laughs> done the majority of it. Um, right, I suppose when you think about it, it, you know, there's not many. Uh, there's very few sort of small dependents that are still that small that their hands are still on the path. Mm. That's mm. the right way. I suppose, yeah. Never really thought of it. Yeah, like the that. fingerprints are in the yeah fingerprints are in the thing yeah yeah certainly i think that's where the interest in independent making comes in at least that's where it you know began with me was the idea that the actual hands of the name on the dial were the hands that created the timepiece yeah that's what people are looking for when they're uh, looking to buy a timepiece so i think it's absolutely perfect and and wonderful that you don't want to expand to take on the role of becoming a ceo i think that's that's ideal Definitely. I'll be a terrible CEO as well. Yeah, I vouch for that. <laughs> oh. T- terrible business-wise or terrible because you'd be a complete despot, you know, you'd be kind oh. of, you know, cracking the whip, you know, the all kind of, you know, Edwardian-style work, no, English work, workshops. No, I think uh, business-wise, <laughs> terrible. You'd be busy wandering around chatting with people, drinking tea and eating biscuits, I think. That would be... <laughs> no. There's worse career choices out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. yeah. Sounds dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> you should. <laughs> well, well, maybe, well, let's, we, I mean, we started having a chat about the watches that you make, that you guys make together. And as I said, there's only two of you, but you do have quite a big range from a ladies' watch to a men's watch to a pocket watch. And now you're working on an in-house English lever escapement watch as well i mean that's quite a collection maybe tell us a little bit about kind of the watches that you make now yeah i mean the, our business so far has been very much uh, reactive i suppose and um, starting so small and without a lot to back us up with we've just responded to customer demand i suppose so the um, tailor-made range actually emerged from we were getting a lot of commissions for bespoke stuff so completely one-off pieces which are great in terms of building up your reputation. And that was using the heritage movements. Um, but they're just economically not viable because you put all this R&D into a single piece. And if you haven't got a big name, you can't charge enough to cover your R&D and you're never making another one. So you'll never see that development cost back again. So we started um, having a few inquiries from people who were open to the idea of we us making more than one of the watch that they wanted. Um, and that started off with the Kingsley, um, and the gentleman who commissioned that was Mr. Kingsley. That's how we named it, and that's our gents' wristwatch. Um, oh. And he was happy to kind of allow us to start making this as a production run. And when that kind of worked, and we we sold a couple more of those, 
um, we did that with a few other clients. So the Kelso's from Mrs. Kelso and um, the Carter's Mr. Carter. Um, <laughs> but that kind of, it was a way of us using these opportunities to allow ourselves to make, um, hopefully make back the R&D on them, <laughs> which is the plan. But I mean, we still don't make very many at all, but it just <laughs> means like we've got, we've got all the design um, kind of base there, the foundation for us to build on to do it again. Um, and yeah, it was through, again, through what our clients were asking us about making a completely in-house movement. So that's again, going back to restoration, we knew we had the skills to work with um, these movements. The reason we made and went for an English leave and movement was because as restorers, we know it really well. Um, not many modern watch, well, no modern watch school is going to teach you how to work with an English leave escapement because they just don't exist anymore. But if you're a restorer <laughs> and it's what you're working with every mm. day, it's actually a really comfortable, natural mechanism for us to be working with. So, um, yeah, clients are asking us and we just thought, mm, yeah, why not? We'll give it a go. And, um, yeah, everything we do is to commission. So with the first in-house movements, we said we were going to make five. Um, thinking that the whole economy as a scale thing would work and making five as a, kind of at the same time would work well and not mm-hmm. apparently when you're doing it by hand. So if anyone's listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, it'll right. five and it'll, not if you're doing it by hand. No, <laughs> I think it works with CNC, but right. not professional um, craft. Yeah, um, one at a time. In yeah, future. yeah. So we'll, we'll slow that down. We'll kind of put them out sequentially, but doing them in batches of five. And we offered those out for deposits to reserve them and all five um, sold. So we're holding oh, five. Yes. We're not taking any more commissions for the next five yet. We want to get the first ones out first and then we'll release the next ones. Mm. Touch wood, no more like global disasters mm. allowing, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And the the English escape, the, sorry, the English lever uh, in your two four eight movements. Are there some design changes of your own there? Are you using a traditional lever? Is it Mudge's lever? Um, no, it's very basic. Which escapement exactly are you using? It's a single roller, so it's the most yeah. basic form there is really. Um, we're using a different magnesium alloy, yeah. um, but nothing nothing trick or uh, futuristic. It's very simple, and um, we wanted to start simple and then build on it. Um, I mean, if anything, Lovely. in the future, I want to go even further back because I'm not looking. We we we're not made trying to make the most precise watch in the world. If we can improve on the original, mm-hmm. a few seconds, that's great. But essentially, mm-hmm. it's about the craft and the idea of why can't we make this? It's it's you know. 150, 200 years old. It's not technology-wise. It's uh, behind the times and it's not efficient. But that kind of, in a weird way, makes me drawn to it even more. Mm. It's uh, probably what a lot sure. of watchmakers disagree might disagree with, and just say, "Well, I'm holding back." You know, it's uh, why well, go backwards? But for me, that's the attraction. Like I was saying before, that's what got us into it. The, mm. the old pieces. Yeah, they're just beautiful. They have so I much. I think there power. are a lot of parallels with cars, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They People like you know inefficient Definitely. big engine cars, and they like vintage cars, and uh, mm. but then with watches, I think you're you're right. I think most people would say, well, why don't you have the most sophisticated escapements? But that's not really the point, right? You just want the loud V8 or whatever it may be. 
you know, the exactly. classical styling. Yeah. yeah, perfectly, perfectly said. The um, the only I think the only thing within um, the movement is is based on an English movement from around 1890 that I believe originally had 90 machines to make it. Um, so yeah. basically, we took that and then thrown in all our other influences like um, German watchmaking, um, French, um, some Swiss watchmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, George Daniels. Uh, George yeah. Daniels, uh, Derek Pratt mm-hmm. is an element of it in the Keyless work. And yeah, just thrown it all in, mixed it all up, and what comes out the other end will. I suppose it will look a, like an English movement, but it will also have a bit of us and also a few mixture of some slightly different elements um, that hopefully the idea is they sit well together. Otherwise, it could look very strange. Mm. That's why I like to draw everything first, mm. just to kind of get an idea. But, um, yeah, I think we're only using... There's no uh, super technical... Materials, yeah, there's one, used, I think. Yeah, there's a new kind of bearing alloy we've been playing with that was developed for Formula One, and that's about the most modern we get, but we machine it using our equipment. Um, so everything we do, we machine mm-hmm. on our tools, mm-hmm. which are all heritage themselves. So mm-hmm. that was, again, starting off with that little loan. Um, we couldn't even afford... That wouldn't have covered a brand-new lace with all the collet set and everything. So we um, mm. we started off just finding boxes of bits on ebay and other auction sites for people. <laughs> um people's garden sheds you know just getting these um ratty old tools and we restored <laughs> the tools ourselves to start restoring and making the watches um so they're mm. lovely i mean most of them are aged between what 1900 and 1970s probably on more modern equipment here yeah um and really kind of back to basics. Um, so that's where the the first in-house movement that we're making, we nicknamed it Project 248, um, standing for two watchmakers, their forehands, and a traditional 8 millimeter watchmaker's lathe, which um, we have a few of now. <laughs> Love it. So, yeah, all our tools have names too. They're kind of like, we spend so much time like restoring them to use them and then using them and getting to know them as characters that they're kind of part of our inanimate workforce. But they are our team. Um, <laughs> we, uh, the other thing that is lovely. I managed to. Uh, I bought off an old watchmaker um, a box of um, original apprentice tools mm. from. They're about eighteen eighty, aren't they? Yeah. But basically, the the wow. I think the. I mean, they're they're incredible. Um, it kind of gave me. This was a long time ago, and it already got me in the thought process of how they used to make a watch, the apprentice. So it was for an English lever watch, and in the in the box there's every tool from crossing out the wheels to um, filing the hands. There's swing mm. polishers in there, mm. and uh, also um, little sets that hold the English lever in place and adjust it. And uh, yeah. that, that's been wow. invaluable because where do you find stuff like that? It's uh, so another one of the watchmaking yeah. skills that's been lost is tool making. Um, we don't talk about tool making much mm. anymore, but traditionally watchmaking apprentices would have to make most, if not all, of their hand tools before they were allowed anywhere near a watch. And I think we were one of the last few years at the BHI course who we started off on tool making. So we had to make movement holders and 
cutters, reamers. and reamers. Yeah, we had to make split collets and stuff before we were allowed to start working on watches. Um, but it's kind of it's quite a rare way of doing it now. But it's such an important skill. If you're going to make anything yourself, you need the tools to make it with. Um, yeah. I think if, if people got mm. bored of making the tools, they'd, they'd leave the course before they got to start on the watches. But maybe that was a, a good thing. I don't yeah. know. Well, that would that could be a good way to screen potential applicants, isn't it? Isn't that would be a good yeah. way to screen potential students? You know, if you spend the first six months, you know, grinding files, then and you're still happy to come back <laughs> for yeah. the second semester. I mean, then you're ready for watchmaking. And I think you mentioned George Daniels, and I'm very sure that a chapter in his book. One of the first few chapters is about making your own tools. I think it was how to grind yeah. files for a particular yeah. thing and stuff like that, you know, chapter mm -hmm. four or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, there is the way you, you speak, there is something undescribably romantic about using a machine from the 18, you know, 100 year old machine to make something that's inspired by a Formula One <laughs> part. There is just something that kind of just pierces that time period just to connect modern progress to heritage craft skill it's just incredible you know <laughs> so that's beautiful yeah. it appeals to the romantic in me definitely definitely no that's that's cool i um i think it's through uh just our desperate need to kind of find what we've got in the workshop and make it work because we can't go out and buy this mm. tool that in our head we know works but it doesn't exist so like um we bought a uh, how old, I think it's um, a, a lathe from about 1890 again, approximately. Um, it's Barney. Yeah, it's a, it's a hand driven. No, Brian. Brian, sorry. Brian, the hand driven lathe. You've probably seen it on Instagram, but yeah, Brian the snail has his magic roundabout. So basically, we just set it up to do snailing, but it's, <laughs> it's got um, a we, we mounted a modern motor on it. Um, so it's basically this old Victorian hand-driven yeah. lathe with a cross slide with a motor, like its own individual power. Uh, and I think the motor is from a, a pump from a, an Audi. Uh, it might be a it might be the water pump or something. A little little wow. black um, twelve DC motor. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that kind of that's how we do our snailing. But it's it's weird to think, like you said, it's a pump a motor out of a modern car mixed with a a, you know, Victorian lathe. It kind of doesn't make sense on paper, but yeah, um, they really work. work. So you, you hand turn the part that's been snailed, and the motor drives the grinding wheel to put the finish on. And just, that just reminded me of when we were making our gear cutting lathe, Helga. She came in a box of bits with her sister Heidi. They're both eight millimeter lathes, and I must admit, I did think Craig was mad, <laughs> and I did take them a little bit as she would. You were making it, but we had um, Jendritsky, the book, the lathe book, has got a, a photograph on the front of it of a gear cutting lathe, and Craig basically designed this entire lathe based on that one photograph. But um, with the indexing head, That's amazing. Um, we had a small engineering company make the indexing plate, um, but we had to make the re retracting pin, spring pin, to hold the indexing plate. As you cut each tooth, you have to move the gear around, put, mm. put it back in again. And I remember there's a point for about six weeks that I couldn't use any of my biros because all of the coiled springs in them have been taken out. I'd, just be, I'd desperately be needing to take them <laughs> out on the phone. I was like, great, making my pen apart again. Um, yeah, it's a little window into our marriage for you there. <laughs> yeah, as, as you can see, it's a bit of a scrap heap challenge of 
um, yeah. <laughs> watchmaking. But, you know, like, I'm a magpie. I love yeah. finding things. And uh, if you can make something work, that's do a job that it's not designed to do, but it otherwise would be redundant, kind of thing, that's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, talking about sort of that sort of saving things, you know, I know you work a lot with reclaimed movements, you know, for, you, you know, Kel, for your Kelso and um, for the Carter, you know, you use movements that were from the bullion industry. And I, th- I just think that's there's once again, there's something so romantic about using something that was made with love and care 50, 70, 100 years ago, let's say, across mm-hmm. the long and actually, you know, saving it and then giving it new life and, you know, make sure it works for the next two, three, four generations. I mean, that's wonderful. The kind yeah, of the definition um, of sustainable is that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Um, they deserve it, really, I think. Yeah. So you put it really beautifully when you say about how you think about the person who thought first bought them. Uh, like, um, so, yeah, one of the things in my head, a little romantic picture of, these old move. I mean, you get these old movements in drawers that have. I mean, most of them are, are pretty rough, or they've got broken bound stuffs, or where they've cut the case open, the gold case. They've actually cut through the movement with bolt cutters as well. But um, in, in oh, another goodness. way, I kind of think back to that the person who first bought the watch, maybe in the 1930s, was kind of on a I don't know a really wet, heavy rain. New York Street, looking through a jeweler's window at this beautiful watch, and then they buy it, and then they pass it on to their son or daughter, and then eventually it becomes it stops working, and then whoever ends up with it then doesn't want to pay for it to get repaired because it's not fashionable anymore, and then maybe someone needs some money and they have it scrapped, and and then I end up with a movement, and it's gone on that massive long journey to back being someone wants to commission mm. something, and it starts again. And uh, it's kind of strange to think of it like that, but I suppose, yeah, it's quite a nice way of looking at it, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, mechanical watchmaking is very much, if if it can't be romantic, then, you know, it's we know it's not strictly necessary now. It's, it's just purely mm. for those sort of, you know, telling stories very much so. And I know, I mean, Rebecca, you're a, you have a PhD in horology. You're a historian of horology. I mean, that I can definitely see how that would appeal to you. And certainly, hearing the way Craig describes it, I can sort of you can hear the warmth in his voice. So you know that sort of that's that's lovely. I can see why you guys work so well together. I mean, I can't imagine working with my partner. Well, I love her dearly, but there's no way we we could uh, marriage would not last. Uh, but you guys have found a thing that you, you both love. So so much, and that you can work together side by side. That's that's wonderful. Thank you. I think you you mentioned as well that the watches aren't necessary, as in we we really don't need them anymore mm. for their purpose. And uh, but in mm. a weird like twist on that, it almost makes it more exciting that you can explore um, more variations in creating a timepiece because you're not restricted to anything it needs to do. So, hence, if you want to make a weird escapement that maybe isn't perfect but tells the time and it looks beautiful and, and the craft behind it is really cool, then that's brilliant. Whereas maybe if you go back, you know, 30 years or something, 
we're always striving for this accuracy and new technology before phones and before people kind of stopped wearing watches. So we're probably really, it's now a good time in a way, I think, to kind of explore um, the history of timepieces, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. And once again, I'm not in the industry. I'm not technically minded. I look at it as purely enthusiasm. For me, this is just craft and art in that sort of sense. And I see watchmaking, mechanical watchmaking now is kind of where painting was after the invention of photography. Because in my mind, you know, before the invention of photography, if you wanted to capture what something actually looked like, you needed skill. It's like precision. You needed precision of execution to make something look like it is, like say, if you were doing a portrait, you needed to paint it to look like life because there was no other way to capture that. As soon as photography came on, you know, that functional aspect of art became sort of obsolete in a sense, right? Because you could take a photo. So, so you're, if you're a painter, if you're an artist, you are now all of a sudden free or freer to really explore the potential of where art can go. And you could, you know, you could do modern art and abstract and all sorts of things because you are freed from the functionality of your craft. And I think there is something, at least in my mind, I could be just rambling, there could be something in my mind about mechanical horology being the same, as you were saying. It's not about how many seconds in a month does it lose because that almost doesn't matter. We all have an iPhone that is runs on, you know, atomic time and whatever the cesium clocks or whatever, the, 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 the level of precision that even quartz cannot even dream of. So now mechanical horology is really free to allow the craftspeople and others to, to express themselves in whichever way they want, whether it's high technology, whether it's high decoration, whether it's what you guys do. I mean, in my mind, there is that freedom, as you say, now it's pure luxury in the sense of it's not necessary which makes it more interesting because there's more scope for artistry. Yeah, totally. That's um, a good, good way of putting it, mm. definitely. Talking on the point of artistry, Craig, uh, you mentioned drawing before, and I've been following your, your drawings and your horological uh, drawings for quite mm. some time now. Is that something for you that started uh, out of watchmaking, just you know, designing your in-house movements or your cases? Was that a hobby beforehand? How did that begin for you? That's a good question. Uh, it's um, I always used to draw as a when I was young. Um, I um, think I'm quite dyslexic, so drawing was something that, rather than reading or writing, drawing was something that um, I just felt. I'm not saying I'm a, a great artist or anything like that, but I enjoy doing it, and I think you enjoy doing it if you if you can draw something and you look at it and it resembles something, you kind of think ah. Like I'm, I'm all right at this, or I'll enjoy doing it. And I think that's my escape, um, you know, from a young kid. And then it kind of, um, I did go. To, I've done lots of jobs, um, very random, uh, up until I was a builder at one point, and uh, I, I wasn't very good at it. Wow. And basically, my mum just said, "Right, you're going to art college." <laughs> so uh, I went to art college only for a year, and wow. um, it kind of got me back interested in it again and then I worked for a design print company for a bit and it's just this is how old, old I am it was before um Apple Maps were, were kind of getting popular so I um I, I actually mm -hmm. thought I wanted to leave my job and travel the world but I actually don't like traveling so 
I try to get back into the art, you know, art and design or graphic design. But my portfolio was so kind of basic. And I remember going around London and everyone was talking about this new Apple Mac design thing that was coming out. And I was mm-hmm. I felt like I was already, I was only, in my, I think I was about 18, 19, but already felt kind of archaic in my sort of portfolio of scribbles and um yeah so unfortunately i never got back into um the graphic design as such and i ended up joining the civil service um and during that time i was offered a job in the it department which is strange because i'm useless at it but they did say there's not actually much work at the time but they know that i like drawing so they said you can draw to your heart's content. Right. And uh, so I ended up drawing all the wow. posters and people and advertising in the in that particular branch. It did get start to get wow. busy, um, and then I started to lose my right. way. Uh, yeah, I, I stayed in IT for about fifteen years. I know it's remarkable because you can't send an email. Um, so it's interesting. Well, there you go. Well, that's a testament to all the kids out there. If you're listening, if you're worried about something, just Craig, Craig's the example, you know. Exactly. <laughs> if you rubbish at everything else, um, drawing's always been there in some uh, part of. I mean, I think lots of people should draw more, like, um, like even on the phone, just sketching, like, and doodling. I think it's really therapeutic. Craig does have this wonderful habit of when he's speaking to someone he's never met on the phone, he'll draw a picture of what he thinks they look like um, while he's talking to them. <laughs> oh, wow. I think they're going to worry whenever they Sometimes, but you can get it quite right, accurate, actually. That could be another Instagram account for you, I think, as well. <laughs> if I'm honest as well, I think with the uh, horological drawings, if you look at all the old books and... Uh, yeah, all the old watchmaking books from sort of, you know, again, 1900 to 1950, the illustrations in them, I just love them. I mean, some of them are pretty bad and mm. some are super technical, but they're all amazing. I love mm. some of the old line, uh, what are they called, the carved, like your old Verge pictures. They're, yeah. um, they're done online. Woodcut. Woodcut. Woodcut drawings and stuff. They're, oh, um, yes, yes, wow. And you don't get, I mean, now you get incredible photography, but... To think they only had that then to illustrate in a book, but I kind of love it. It's um, especially when the paper's all yellowed and faded. I just think it looks great. And how close? Because because I, I, I'll echo Ruben's um, comments. I mean, your drawings are phenomenal. Uh, and there was there, there was a drawing on your on the Instagram account of the Project Two Four Eight watch that that you've drawn both sort of the watch the watch and the hands. And I mean, looks beautiful. Uh, my question would be: When you do the horological drawings, how closely do the final products resemble the drawings? Is it a one-to-one, or do you find that the way it looks on the page sometimes you have to adjust because it's a three D object at, at the end of things? I just wonder how that relates. I th- I think it'll be similar. Very word. close, actually. For the, especially the um, sort of tailor-made things when we started off doing the Calcella Kingsley. Um, remarkably close. I mean, mm. if I look at the doll design, the drawing mm-hmm. you did for the Carter, it is virtually one to one. Actually, yeah, just that's just reminding me. Um, the other thing we do for our uh, commissions is I draw it first because we don't have. I can't show them a CAD drawing or um, obviously sure. a photograph, so mm. I draw it first, and that and hopefully they that's enough and they sort sort of buy into it. 
and uh, so yeah, that, they have to be quite close. And it's interesting. I've never really thought of putting them mm. side by side. I'll, I'll definitely do it two, four, eight. But um, they do normally end up pretty mm. good. Um, I wouldn't say dimensionally accurate, but as a as, as a drawing, they're normally pretty good. So then, how do you go from the design that you've drawn? Mm-hmm. to when you make things do you have to make a technical drawing in the middle or do you guys just make it with you know you take a rod of silver and a rod of something and off you go or do you actually have to translate the craig drawing into a sad or a that's where I come in. Yeah. <laughs> so i do i'm more technically minded <laughs> yeah i do the emails and and decide <laughs> the drawing yeah basically that's my job but um yeah so i'm i do more of the kind of engineering side of stuff so doing the the maths bits to figure out how we're actually going to put this together and make things um i hate doing um case dimensions i really i just i don't mind in the watch parts but for some reason case dimensions um i give it to rebecca (laughs) and i love it i think that's why we work so well together we have opposite skill sets so we've always said like individually we're decent watchmakers but together as a team we make one very good watchmaker we just kind of we fill the other kind of side of what we need yeah so you work in um like two is it two i do yeah i do two d draw i can do two d that this is as advanced as we are technically speaking i can do a bit of illustrator that i've taught myself and that's it so we still don't use cad or anything but i find that really helps me move stuff around and get the dimensions right then I can translate that into a, an actual drawing and then but start making. We can have a uh, there's a jewelry company that can actually do um, like a, a resin, a three D it's three D printing basically, isn't it? Mm. Oh, like a three D printed thing, right? Yeah, they yeah. can mock up if we give them dimensions. They can mock up a very rough case size. Yeah. Um. So recently we were looking at doing a, a smaller version of one of our watches and. We they mocked up a um, from our dimensions a, a, a basis mm. resin yeah. case yeah. and it's quite nice because it's almost strong enough for you to put in the lathe and turn bits off and then mm. you can make it sort of snap together mm. um, and that was enough. Oh, okay, gotcha. And we sent that to the client as a sort of this is as close as you'll get before commissioning it as to what it might look like and uh, oh yeah so. We do use technology. That, that's, um, I suppose, yeah, that's a really good bit of technology. It's really useful. It is, yeah, especially for a wristwatch because ergonomics are so important that kind of a pocket watch, you kind of, you're freer to do mm. what you want, whereas mm. something you've got to wear on your wrist, the way it fits and sits on your wrist, you can't really get that from a, a 2D drawing. You need to be able to feel it and try it. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, every, like, uh, Kingsley we've made, because we do it on basically on a lathe and there's a snap fit for the bezel um they're probably all very slightly different anyway even though they're the same watch Mm. all the finishing is by hand as well that's the beauty of a handmade product yeah i suppose so um yeah yeah it's kind of cool in a way so i suppose they're all bespoke in that respect but in the car the car similarities Mm. again it's kind of like coach building so you kind of you're making them all to a standard formula, but they're all made to themselves. So you can not just switch around bezels and backs and whatever. They they are kind of unique coach built for that mm. watch. Yeah. Mm. As as we've found out in the past, when something's not quite gone right, 
And then I thought, oh, I've already made one of those. And then it doesn't quite fit. Mm. So you yeah. start again. Well, in some ways, that that's reassuring to the client that they know when they get the watch, it's made perfect because otherwise it wouldn't fit. They're not they're not interchangeable parts. I mean, in some ways, no. that's something quite reassuring. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that that you guys do make your own cases. That seems to be sort of a very rare uh, kind of skill set. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm having a watch made by a friend in the UK at the moment, and he's making the case himself as well. And when we were looking around, who else makes? No, just about nobody else makes cases. So yeah, yeah that's. Amazing that you guys can do it. Absolutely. I was going to comment on that earlier. 10 weeks turnaround. Sorry. Uh, 10 weeks turnaround, you said, from not having a case to getting together yeah. and making a case. I think that is extraordinary. Mm. Not that now. Very stressful we 10 weeks. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, we had to turn up to this award ceremony. At, it was at um, oh, the London Jewelry, RJL, International Jewelry yeah. London. Uh, Earl's Court for the awards ceremony at the end of it, and we'd literally just finished this watch, and there were like models like wearing stuff, and we were just there completely exhausted, like a hair around our face, just like, oh my goodness, yeah, I need to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite traumatic. But it, it was a non-stop ten weeks, whereas yeah, we we kind of uh, have to juggle a lot more now. Yeah, we're kind of in between constant projects and yeah. working around lots of things whereas back then I think for, we were probably doing restoration but um we had a even though it was only 10 weeks at least we had more time yeah. to spend making it I think it's the first thing we'd ever I'd ever won so we just thought mm. yeah we need to do this yeah um, and it's a really good learning curve so I'd started off training as a jeweler and silversmith so I had basic experience with working precious metals soldering finishing I was really lucky as well that um Pretty well, none of the courses that I took to get to the point that I am at now still exist. So uh, the two-year course that I did was a full-on hands-on vocational course. It was a BTEC national um, in the UK. And the goldsmith who taught us, he started his apprenticeship at 14. Um, he was from Austria and he retired the year after I finished wow. the course. So I had I was really really oh, wow. privileged to be able to go through at that time and, and to benefit from having that level mm. of experience teach me for a few years. Um, so I came to it with that, and then it was through that experience of making that first case in ten weeks and decided we can never ever do this to ourselves again. Um, that we started looking for more case makers <laughs> and thinking, well, how can we really advance what we're doing because we're really struggling to find anyone. And we found a case maker called Adam Phillips based in Chesham. And it was basically through you sweet talking on the phone, convincing him to give us a <laughs> chance at teaching us some of his skills that we managed to get a sponsorship through the Queen Elizabeth Scholarship Trust. He gave a grant to Adam to teach Craig. And you went down to learn with him. Yeah, it was basically 10, ten days with Adam. Um not sort of once a week kind of thing. And he he's he taught me the um, mm. boxwood turning method, um, which is basically gluing the cast, case parts onto the boxwood um, and then heating it up to get them off. But the, the beauty of using boxwood is it's very easy to glue the case parts on, a little bit of heat and take them off. Mm. And also every time you turn mm. a step in it, it's perfectly square yeah. or perfectly true. Um, so it's a really mm. nice quick way mm. compared to the way I was doing it which was using like brass jigs and 
and sort of six jaw chucks and things that were just it just wasn't economically viable and it took too long and sometimes um they wouldn't hold the piece perfectly and uh because it depends mm. on with most old tools um a lot of it has obviously been used and some of it isn't as accurate as it you know as it used to be so you mm. have to be careful when making jigs and things like that that you uh you're only working on the bit you've just turned sort of thing. So the boxwood turns really quickly and it's it's just a nice way of doing it. Mm. Yeah, turn, that that really helped us. Um, wow. Yeah, that, that just transformed our process then. Um, so, yeah, Adam was great. Unfortunately, Adam's uh, not with us anymore. So part of um, everything he did to teach me as well and uh, hopefully we can, we can share at some point and... Um, carry on his uh, mm. his legacy and skills and things you showed me. Yeah, and that's and that sort of and that sort of harkens back to what we were talking about before. That sort of unbroken chain of knowledge, isn't it? All it takes is that one generation to skip, and you lose that wealth of knowledge of case yeah. making before. Yeah, I mean, so 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 the other thing I find interesting with you guys is you know you're a small team, you have a pretty you know, wide range of watches. You make you know, small numbers, but you do offer a lot of variety. And you also continue to do servicing and restoration as well. What's kind of is what's the sort of a balance of your work? Is it sort of half making, half restoration servicing? Is it sort of 70, 30? I'm just trying to kind of picture what how you spend your time. I mean, it sounds like you just work all the time. <laughs> yeah, a lot of work, which is fortunate again, being married and living together and working together because you know, I, I think we'd have serious issues if we weren't working together. We'd never get to see each other. This is the only way that we actually get to see each other. Of course. <laughs> we're working together. So, um, yeah, we're, we're still, I mean, most people I know do long jobs and long hours, but we normally, we can do like seven till nine quite a lot. Um, and then we've got an hour mm. and a half drive home. And I know it's not a sob story, but it's just like we, we put, if you, you, to do this, I think self-employed, a lot of people probably look at us and think, um, how are you living the dream? You know, your own boss and everything. But the amount of hours <laughs> you have to in, a, in a small business, as, as you mm. probably know, it's just not always the dream. Um, in fact, you don't get to dream much because you're always working. <laughs> but uh, I think with the balance, it's, it's normally... It swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Different projects have different demands at different stages. So sometimes we can be full on with just making for a few weeks. Um, then we might get some restoration and we need to get done. And it yeah. And so it just kind of swings around depending on what project needs what attention at, at whichever stage. Which... You've got to kind of uh, switch on to the project and then completely mm. clear your mind and start the next thing. It could be in the same day. So sometimes it's like you've really mm. got to be... Um, disciplined as to working on someone's old timepiece to then making some parts for your own because I know it sounds like it's still watchmaking but for me I've got to get in two completely different zones to do either yeah. and Rebecca's the same with no, I bet. Uh, writing, writing and watchmaking. watchmaking and emails it's where having a dog helps because you can just take him for a walk in between jobs and that kind of like it's an extra sketch for the brain then, isn't it? You just kind of like yes. hear that out on the next. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the other thing that I thought was really cool, and, you know, and this is for me once again being an enthusiast, is you guys actually put your charges for servicing and restoration on your website. 
and you know that you know the kind of this is what it would cost and i think that's just so rare i've never seen that anywhere that you know that if somebody had a piece that they were wanting to restore and they were trying to decide you actually take that cost concern out for some people i'm sure that's the case you know if somebody has a piece that they finally go oh i wonder if it's worth okay you put your actual prices rough prices but at least price indications on the on the website that's 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 great i mean i don't i can't think of anyone else who does that which is brilliant yeah that seems normal to me no i think it's not common i know a few other people do it's certainly not common and i think we've just found we don't just do service we don't just take it apart clean it a bit stick it back together with a bit of new oil in and out Mm. our process is quite involved (laughs) it's time and consequently we're very aware we're not the cheapest service restoration company out there i think Mm. i just try to be really respectful that kind of for some people five six hundred pounds dollars isn't a lot of money at all it's nothing and then to other people that is an awful lot of money um and i think Mm. just by trying to be transparent you're not um you're not going to leave anyone thinking like oh i really want to get my watch service i want to have this done by these people and Mm. they've followed you online or anything they feel a connection to you and then they send it in and the the news is basically that they can't afford you and you kind of you I don't know. It just doesn't feel right somehow. I think if you if you're open with that with the beginning, that it just I don't know. It just feels a bit more respectful. I would never expect someone to just be able to afford anything or everything that we do because it mm. is. You know, some people are very lucky and, and can, and we're very grateful for that. But then other people can't, and you never know. Maybe they're going to be one of the next generation of master watchmakers because if you can't afford it, or well, maybe you have to learn to do it yourself. Mm. So. You know, you want to keep everyone on board and keep them engaged and feeling included, and I think that's it's uh, important to us. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's great because I think that also helps to prevent people wasting your time because then you're not answering all the endless emails or how much is this going to cost, and at least you've got that upfront that people can sort of start to make that decision on their own. I just think I just thought it was when I saw it, I thought that's a great service. That's once again, it's sort of great service to offer. Not only can you bring your skills that you guys do in terms of making parts and all of that, that you have the expertise, but you also got quite upfront about it, which I just thought it was worth mentioning because it is great in my mind. I was only going to say another thing, which is probably time-wasting on our behalf, but we always send um, like a photo montage emails of what we're doing on, on the restoration. And some people are like, oh, that's great. It's, I always think when you, when you take your car into a garage or whatever and cost you sometimes you know eight nine hundred pounds you've no idea what they've done really you're lucky sometimes if they show you the bit mm. in the bin that changed but um i, th- I just thought we should do that <laughs> with our washes and uh, pe- people love it get the email through polished pivot or replace jewel or something and i think it just uh i, I think i'd like it that's why i, I did it that's, mm. that's why we do it I think that's a lovely piece of mind for a customer as well, you know. The um what you guys do to a client's watch is a mystery, you know. Um so I think that's really valuable that you add that. Um I was saying before about your time and I am just intrigued by the both of you um over the last few years taken on many more uh streams of, of work and with the watchmakers cafe opening and uh, Rebecca, your books uh, obviously being written and edited and published uh, in the near future. And uh, where 
how do you allocate and how do you spread your time out? Are you becoming busier? Are your days becoming longer? Or are you becoming more streamlined and better at certain things? Or are you dropping certain lines of business? How are you managing? A bit of both, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, we are we are working some very long mm-hmm. hours now, especially with all the lockdowns. Um, we weren't able to spend as much time in the workshop for quite a while. Um, so we've got a lot of catching up with our workshops to do. That played in quite nicely with writing my book. So that's in the editing stages now. Um, but it meant I could do something when, because we set up a very small home workshop that was literally like one in, one out. Um, so that that was kind of, you could just about fit in there. Couldn't, you couldn't turn around or stand up, but you could, yeah. you could do a little bit in there. Oh, um, it worked. I mean, it, I literally you were had, going mad in the end. You were getting cabin fever by the end of it. <laughs> to be fair, on lockdown, it was kind of. It was the only thing that kept us going at one yeah. point. So couldn't couldn't do, not for restoration, but I could make the odd part in there, and right. it, it helped. It's a great help. Time is is yeah. It's, time is a problem. I know it sounds a bit of a ironic for what ironic joke, but it it yeah. is it is an issue. Like, I couldn't have written a book had it not been for lockdown and the book was written in, in lockdown. So that just came about at, I was going to say the right time. That's an awful thing to say. It's been a horrible couple of years. Um, it just, yeah, that kind of, that worked into itself. But then in terms of managing making and restoration, it is just a lot of time. And I think ultimately we will look to reduce what we do. Um, I think we have struggled a little bit with being a very small, very new company. Um, Not having a reputation means for a long time you can't really charge how much your work is worth. Um, You can't charge the right hourly rate. Mm. No one who knows who you are, why are they going to spend a huge sum of money on a watch that you haven't even made yet when they don't even know who you are? And you don't have that many watches out there to really show what you're capable of doing. But I think the only cure to that really is time and um working an awful lot of very long hours in the meantime to get yourself to that point where you can start mm-hmm. going, okay, now I've shown you what I can do and it's going to be like this much now. And with that, you can start to reduce the, like with the restoration, I think we'll always do a bit, but it would be nice to reduce it down to just doing the projects that we're really excited about and really enjoy. Um, so at the moment, that's kind of been our bread and butter while we do the making. Um, we'll probably do less mm, bespoke work. So less kind of one-off pieces because, again, just the R&D on those is an absolute mm-hmm. nightmare. Um, and really focus on our in-house movement. That's where we want to go with the future because that's something we then have total control over the process of. And um, we love doing it as well. That's our, our kind of – between really lovely restoration of the right pieces and our in-house movement, those are things that we get the most excited about. Yeah. And uh, I think um... – just seeing what other people are doing as well is also uh, inspiration as well to keep us going because if, if other people weren't doing it, I can see what other people do on Instagram, I suppose. You kind of feel very isolated, so it's nice to see what other people are doing. It does give you a bit of a buzz and think they're doing, you know, great mm-hmm. stuff and it just gives you, makes you want to keep going. And um, So it's cool. I like... I like um, I love the fact there's so many independents doing fantastic stuff now because um, the more people doing it, the more varied it gets, the more exciting it gets. And I think it's just the opposite of the, the sort of massive, uh, nothing wrong with the big brands. Like they all started off small, I get that. But sometimes it's nice to see something really <laughs> raw and different. 
It's cool. There does Certainly. seem to be a bit of more of a resurgence and appreciation of independent watchmaking. And certainly when I look at the UK, there's, you know, the whole crop of really exciting things happening at just about at every price level. You know, if we look at Anodane as one example, there's Garrick, you know, there's, you know, all the way to Christopher Ward. I mean, we're not even talking about Roger Smith and the stuff that he's doing. You know, there seems to be this real groundswell of really cool things happening in the UK in particular. I mean, you can probably say similar things in the US with a whole bunch of people. It's really wonderful to see this sort of, you know, independent makers all kind of hopefully inspiring each other and hopefully collaborating behind the scenes or in out in the open to kind of help everybody establish themselves because the market's really big. You're right. There's always going to be a room for larger brands. They're always going to exist, but hopefully, you know, sort of a rising tide lifting all boats and, in my hopefully in my in my dreams the independent boats are rising a lot higher than than the, than the big cruise ships you know just because they're lighter and more fleet and more kind of agile and more exciting at least at least in my mind yeah i think there's definitely some truth in that i think uh, as a small independent brand you've got a lot more we're talking earlier about freedom um i think for some of the bigger brands whenever they change something or adapt a new model it costs it's hundreds of thousands of pounds and it's not always economically viable for mm. them. it can be a huge mistake whereas with, with the smaller independents mm. i know it's expensive and sometimes on the same level but it's certainly more freedom i think um to sort of think i can do that it's like as long as someone likes it and i enjoy making it it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's kind of cool. <laughs> and what's the plan for you guys in the ideal world? You know, if we think about the number of pieces made a year or something, you know, let's say what would be your ideal kind of output? If you had the clients, what would be kind of your ideal way to work? One a year. Yeah, about one watch a year would be a nice number to be able to focus our attention on. Then, then we might be able to have a holiday mm. as well. That would be nice. Uh, mm. yeah um yeah i think one a year would be a good good figure for us i think um that's the other thing maybe uh, um you know like the we were talking about earlier about uh if you if i know the watchmakers cafe was around earlier for in for people that are sort of isolated and have no other access to teaching i think the other thing is um that me and rebecca really wish we'd had more of is the business side of things mm um like that again because mm. people just think i'll oh, watch making i'm gonna do this i love it clients and it's not always it's never always that straightforward or plain sailing and yeah you get often <laughs> collaborations and uh some clients are obviously very different to others what they expect and what they want and also running a workshop and everything else that goes with yeah. it if you have uh some help on that i think it could help because it can be stressful if, if all you want to do is be at the bench and make things and then you've got all these other yeah. things coming at you from every angle about I don't know, rent uh just business stuff <laughs> as i call it and it, it yeah. does get on top sometimes mm. surprising what you, you think mm. it should be the easiest thing these days to set up on your own but it can be a, a, an absolute quagmire of uh, yeah. illusion and delusion <laughs> um but that, I'm just saying mm -hmm. like, that would be another helpful thing, I think, for independents trying to set up, not to get fall into those same traps yeah. and pitfalls. Specialist business advice, because we did do a few kind of like the general, like your bank runs a business 
advice forum or whatever or we um we were part of um kind of a mentoring scheme as well um which partnered little independent makers with bigger manufacturing businesses and um it's it's just not the same like they send you as a tiny little independent maker into like one of the biggest accountancy firms in the world to give you advice and you're thinking oh they're talking about like being in millions and millions and millions of pounds and you think this is you know (laughs) their fees for like an hour global exports they're talking global markets sure yeah yeah it's just it's not relevant it's really hard to get the really relevant more real advice based on where you are in your business now um because they, they have, they kind of have departments to deal with issues like whether someone's chasing them for business rates or whatever it is. Yeah. And when it's yourself, it's literally everything falls on you, and it can be a lot of pressure sometimes. Yeah. Mm. Certainly, I can at least say in my own experience that every moment spent outside the workshop working on anything to do with my uh, horological business is is stressful. It induces anxiety. It's like you know, I I need to be back on the tools and being on the tools and making and making progress on you know, the technical side is when everything can be at ease, at least. Yeah, I hear that completely. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's difficult sometimes. People think that's the last thing, but sometimes it should be the first thing. Um, mm. But it's yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, some people are naturally brilliant business people, and. Uh, you know. They're rarely the brilliant makers. I think that's the thing. You usually get your business people, your makers, and a really good way to, is to collaborate with the business. So you've got someone to manage that. But if you're on your own and you're doing both, it's very rare you get someone who's great at business and great at making. Um, and it is a real struggle. And it can be really soul-destroying. So if your love is making stuff, dealing with admin is like the most depressing things absolutely <laughs> you're trying to like sort out your website's gone down and like you can't afford to develop and now you're trying to teach yourself basic like web development stuff and you're thinking this isn't what i ever wanted to do this isn't why i signed up <laughs> but um it's got to be yes. done um, yes. just managing it no i think i think you're right i i, I mean the, that that comment about the, the great independent watchmakers are not always bus- the best at running their own businesses. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the world of independent watchmaking is sa- sadly littered with names of defunct brands or names of current brands where the eponymous maker is no longer at the brand. And, you know, always, you know, we don't need to list them, but there is, you know, there's at least a dozen that I can think of, you know, and it's always, yeah, it always a bit heartbreaking for me as a pure enthusiast. Yes. That the fact that the, the person who got into it for the love of making and then ultimately the business kind of killed the passion or drove that creator out. It's always very, it's a sad, yeah, it must be a very sad, heartbreaking day, you know, if that when that happens. So hopefully, well, I think what you guys doing is probably, is probably the very smart way of you stay small, focusing on the making and, you know, not chasing the global domination and worldwide expansion, which would then draw you away from the actual making yeah we're lucky we learn very early on um and we do network <laughs> quite well as well so we speak to a lot of other makers we do try and get out there and speak to other people and so we saw quite quickly that kind of the, what we thought of the independent watchmaking industry wasn't all it appeared to be and yeah i think we that which was lucky again being a small business you can change direction very quickly so we did kind of initially start on that route before speaking to a few people and just suddenly having this 
dawning realization that this isn't this isn't where we need to be going and could turn around very quickly so um, i think that was lucky that was lucky yeah i want to ask where the uh the names have come from for all of your machinery i have a great affinity to my machines i have not named them how, how did this come about and where do the names come from um so names for our tools some of them we name after who they came from barney um, start with barney okay yeah so barney's um a 10 mil portrait lathe um i found him on ebay lovely um and you know people have the um username on ebay um so the, mm-hmm. the, the ebay user he was called barney the whippet so uh, when me and Rebecca went to collect, <laughs> yeah. went to collect the uh, the lake, we love dogs. We yeah, love we, dogs. obviously we love dogs, and we thought yeah. oh, we're going to meet a whippet as well. And um, we turned up in the guy. <laughs> unfortunately, the whippet had passed away. Yeah. Um, but since oh. then, we just we just thought we'll call this one Barney. So, in his honour, um, the honour of Barney the whippet. Barney is the oh, the name lives on. Name. Clive, our pinion cutting after the guy who we bought it from. Yeah, mostly. Steve just Clive Press. Um, we recently inherited from um, Adam Phillips, the case maker, a really beautiful lathe from him that we've called Adam. Yeah. Some are a bit cheesy, like um, just because they're German. One of them's a six mil lathe, which is quite small, so we've just called her Mouse. Yeah, M A U S, like the German for mouse. <laughs> little and cute. Um, <laughs> Very nice. We've got Spitznaus, nice. which is German for shrew. Yeah, I think. yeah, and that um, was Mouse's sister, so they came together with her. Uh, um. I think initially <laughs> I did it was, um, so we knew what, I know it sounds silly, but if I said to her, I'm going to use Heidi to do this. Yeah, mm. when you've got enough lays, it doesn't really specify if you just say, oh, I'm going to just, you be on the 8 mil or whatever, and you yeah, if we're trying yeah. to like work around each other. It, it I mean, there's hard. only two of us. It's not like we're fighting over legs, but um, it's just uh, I don't know. It's just <laughs> I'm going to do yeah. this on so and so, and you kind of I suppose in another way, not that we talk to them or give them tea breaks, but they are members of staff in a weird way. Yeah, kind of makes them feel part of the team as well. Then they've got their own little story and. Yeah, like we've restored them all as well, so we spent a lot of time with them. It kind of feels like like naming our cars. I don't know if you guys name your cars. <laughs> we name our cars too. We just yeah, that's quite a big thing, I think, naming yeah. cars. So, do the machines have personalities, or do that you ascribe personalities? You know, Barney's yeah. always grumpy in the mornings, or Heidi's always perfect because she's German. She always cuts well, or whatever. Now she needs a bit of time to warm up. She um she can be a bit slow getting started. Can't right. Yeah, yeah. Mouse has got an old English motor that's a bit worn out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you're probably trying to work out how mad we've gone with yeah. our main blades. This is basically what happens when there's just two of you locked in a workshop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's... I think if anything, it's actually reinforcing the charming, you know, the charming nature of how you guys work. I mean, if anything, that's wonderful. I don't think. The engineering department at Rolex names their it gives names <laughs> to their ninety eight CNC machines, right? So I think if no. anything, what you do is actually much more wonderful to me than actually. Well, that's it. Interesting. There was um, uh, a company called um, a dial company that we use, oh, and, yeah, that, and they use a very old. Um, it's they, a family run company, isn't it? It's been in the family for. Four or five generations, and they've got some old antique printing presses oh, wow. from 
their company and they've named it after the generations of their company. So it's like a George and a... Oh, that's yeah. Cool. yeah so I, I didn't feel so stupid then. <laughs> um, but they, they use um, pad print, like traditional <laughs> pad printing, um, but they also do, is it Lido? No, yeah, Lino. Yeah, Lido. So they have a massive wheel that rolls over a tiny dial and it sounds like it wouldn't work. But oh, the, wow. the, so the, sensitive, the precision it? is incredible. Um, but I know pad printing's spot on. Wow. Um, you just see this old machine mm. from the turn of the century with this big wheel moving over this little... You just think you get crushed and turn into a banana. But it just... Yeah, bent or something. It's used for printing scientific instruments yeah. originally. Oh, right, right. Wow, well, that's amazing. Amazing what you could design. Yeah, these old machines, yeah. amazing. Well, as we sort of start, to, as we move towards sort of wrapping up, so I'm just wanting to, so what's the future for you guys like? What's the sort of plan for the next 6, 12 months looking ahead? 248 finished and out there and starting the next ones. That's going to be a massive, massive step forward for us. Yeah. Big time. Um, We've got addition. So we so basically two four eight was the nickname that we used just so we knew what we were talking about when we said we're going to work on on it, or I'm working on it, or you're doing something for it, or whatever. So we knew mm-hmm. what we we're talking about. But it's kind of stuck now. It's two four eight. So the next one is really boring. Cool. It's just going to be two four eight edition two, and because yeah. I still think hmm. it's part of the same family. So. Second edition. We're going to go for a literary kind of. Uh, yeah, but um, we're going to make them obviously one, like sequential, one at a time. Yeah. Uh, just keep it simple. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, getting that 248 done. Um, Watchmakers Cafe, try and get some other contributors in, and yeah. anyone wants to help or get involved in any way, yeah, that would be well. helpful. Um, um, we might have taken on too much, maybe. Yeah, again. No, because we're going to be cutting back mm. up. So that that's um, <laughs> better. And my my book's written now, so that'll be um, that's out in May 2023. So I'll be doing a lot of preparing, ready for that, which is a, another completely different way of doing it. Because with our watchmaking, obviously we don't make very many watches at all, so we've never had to build an audience. Really, we just we don't want a lot of people. We just want the right people. Whereas now writing a book, you've got to sell as mm. many copies as you can. So I'm in this process now of trying to refigure out myself. <laughs> what I need to do to kind of build an audience but um it's a real learning curve and I love sharing what I do anyway so it's it's not an issue it's just more learning but um that's it'll take a little bit of time mm. too but it's just an opportunity to share more of what we do so hopefully it should all work quite well alongside each other very simple really not, not really? a lot uh, can change. you tell us a little except a holiday mm. we're gonna have just a holiday hopefully <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully, just slightly fewer working hours so you guys can enjoy a bit of a break. That's no, what definitely. I was going to say. Well. Um, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Or is that still a bit hush hush and not quite ready for discussion? No, um, it's fine. To, the, the book is um, a history of time. So it's a watchmaker's history of time. And I use watches as kind of the, the narrative tour, I suppose, to take people through this guided tour of not just the development of. Um, Mechanic, me, sorry, the development of mechanisms or other timekeepers, but also our relationship with time itself. So looking back to how we first discovered time, that it was a kind of a cyclic, predictable thing that we could use, and how we started mm-hmm. measuring that and then using it to help 
transform our lives from things like agriculture and then the impact of that on civilizations right the way through to um, improving techniques for measuring it more accurately, dividing the day um, into smaller and smaller increments and just, yeah, how that really has transformed both our relationship with science and understanding the universe around us, but also on a really personal level of how it's affected us as individuals of the psychology of time and um, how we perceive it and how we can change the way we perceive time, um, all told through watches. So it's, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed writing it. It's taken me completely outside the normal realms for what you have to learn as a watchmaker. But, um, I mean, anyone who's worked on vintage and antique watches in particular will know that you see so many different, whether it's marks from past restorers or past repairs, or you can see the way the watch has been worn, it's marks, um, even down to like personal engraving and things like that. They have a story. Um, and you can learn to read a watch, like you could read a book. And I've always loved like with my PhD, um, the way I researched that was taking these objects, taking them apart, really studying them and looking for these little hidden clues inside them. And then researching all the archival material and the contemporary literature. And you can see the stories in the literature in the stories of the watches and kind of pairing those two things together of doing that. And so the book goes, and it goes back to the first watch, which is um, made in around 1500. Um, but it also goes right the way back to the discovery of time, which was probably around 40,000 years ago, and how we first really started mm, right. navigating our, our relationship with with time. So yeah, huge. Wow. I'm just annoyed I've got to wait till May 2023. I'm a bit annoyed too. Are you going to make a, an audio recording of the book? Um, yeah, yeah. So there'll be. Um, well, you've just added more... another project. Yes, I um, Fortunately, no, the, the publishers handle all of that. Um, but yeah, that will be recorded closer to the release. Oh, fantastic. I'm a, I'm a big sort of. I, I love horology books. That's kind of a passion. So I, if I can, if, if, if there's a pre order button somewhere, just send me a link. Yeah. Well, it's not, <laughs> yeah, well, not available just yet, but I will be like tweeting and Instagramming no. all about it um, as soon as it is. I should also mention that uh, I have an exceptional horological illustrator recruited for uh, <laughs> for illustrating my book, Craig's Fellow. Which, yeah. Um, that's uh i'm still waiting on some of those drawings yeah i need to catch up on again another way to work together yeah. yeah well you've brought you you've vertical integration you've brought everything in-house yeah. you know talk about in-house movements you've already brought in-house illustration as well amazing mm. <laughs> yeah. cool. well, i'm honored it's, it's a real real well, good thing to do I'm honoured. I'm honoured to be working with such a talented. Uh... Oh, <laughs> we're um, yeah, oh, we you guys are adorable. adorable. That's way we're, too we're, lovely. We're just honoured to talk to both of you in one time, and and particularly as you know, we very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I think just hearing all the things that you guys have done, all the things that you are doing, and also the thoughtfulness that you're putting into sharing the knowledge, whether it's through your book through the upcoming book or through the watch cafe it's just fantastic i mean to me once again this pure enthusiast it just highlights that there's i'm so glad i'm really glad that there are people like you and ruben who are actually you know carrying this passion forward and actually engaging other people in it it's just wonderful so thank you very much for coming on the show 
speak with us. No, th- thank you so much yeah. for talking to us and listening to us and uh, really appreciate it. And it's really nice to meet you as well, Ruben. Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, like you're already sharing stuff. So that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. That's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. And uh, thank you for sharing a, a glimpse into what it's like in the Struthers workshop. I think truly for anyone who's passionate about independent neurology, which I certainly am, uh, it's that's what you want. And so thank you so much for sharing. No worries. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you, having us. Thanks, guys. And last thing, tell our listeners what's the, how, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, whether it's a commissioner piece, talk about restoration, all of that. I suppose the best way is initially email or telephone, isn't it? Yeah, so you can contact us through our website. Um, We're also on Instagram and Twitter. So Business is Struthers Watchmakers. I'm Rebecca Struthers and Craig is on Instagram with his drawings under Craig Struthers. Fantastic. And we definitely urge everyone to, one, keep an eye out for the book, May 2023. Well, we will put links in whatever we'll make sure that as many copies get shifted as possible we'll 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 have to get sort of a, a shipload to australia somehow but we'll talk after the show but look thank you very much guys greg rebecca great to meet you thank you Lovely great to, to meet, meet you, you too. great to meet you guys thank you. thank you so much thank you all thanks guys ruben thanks for co-hosting it's been brilliant all right thanks very much cheers yeah, thank, you. thank you stay on time Fifth Wrist is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.